Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. Gavin, Richard and Zara all here. Um, it's been a weird news week, or at least it feels like it's been a weird news week because the, the follow-on from a bank holiday weekend is always kind of a little slower than usual, isn't it? It's, it doesn't seem like it's been as hectic this week as it has been in other weeks. Can I just say I'm loving this new bank holiday weekend because I actually forgot that it Good was coming up and it was like a surprise bank holiday. I actually did forget as did well. You forget yeah, as well? I, I didn't want it to be a discussion about how many of us forgot the bank holiday. Okay. And all that sort of, but it was. But it was. I actually forgot uh, until last Wednesday. Is this the third time we've had it, or the second time we've had it? This is the. It's the second time it's been in February. There was one in 2022 uh, tacked onto Patrick's Day. Remember, oh, it was I remember the COVID commemoration. Too, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is the second one in February. Uh, I also, just to complete the Triple Crown, I also forgot that it was a bank holiday. And when there was a, a note came in on Sunday night that Leo Varadkar would be in Stormont on Monday, I forgot that it was a bank holiday. And I said, I'll do that. Oh, no. And then <laughs> before before I could pull the ships back in, then I was already oh, committed. I, I, I came into the studio piece on Monday. Okay. but I, uh, It was a historic I, day. It was a historic day yeah. and yeah. Uh, quite significant. And to be fair, it does deserve to be marked. Um, it being a slightly weird news week, it's worth talking about something that we actually didn't get to talk about very much last week, which is the ongoing malaise in RTE. Uh, we know there's a couple of reports that are still due about culture and governance, which in turn then might steer the direction of the future of the TV licence. Still a lot of debate within Cabinet about the future of what the TV licence will be. Mm. Also, um, there appeared to be a very short-lived suggestion this week of an exodus of top talent because no sooner had Brian Dobson announced that he was going to be going in April, there was a suggestion, Zara, that Joe Duffy was going to be at the door. Mm, but Joe Duffy says he didn't know about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which which isn't it isn't isn't great, great for the old RT exit well, storyline that we might have been pursuing the, the here. The contract is up for renewal was the word, wasn't it? The contract is up yeah. next year, isn't it? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Right. So it's up next year. He says he hasn't decided whether or not he's signing it yet. So that does leave still potential mm. if you wanted to call two people leaving their jobs in Exodus, even though they're leaving Brian Dobson is, is is effectively retiring from his job. Long and distinguished career. Mm. One of the best broadcasters we'll ever, ever have. Mm. A man with the pure fundamentals of how to conduct an interview. Uh, he's leaving. So that's one of the top they 10 earners. a lot of love for Dabo on the group Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, just a great guy to work with by all accounts as well. You know, a lot of people mm. who worked with him over the years in RTE just a brilliant, brilliant person who's always got time to hear people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, pure gent. He's emceed a few charity table quizzes for us in the Rock Express Gallery and he's nothing short of a gentleman. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Good a good table quiz MC. Ex- an excellent host because also he just really intimidates all the participants. Oh. That would do it. <laughs> it's very handy. It's a good thing to have. But the point, the point is, so he's one of the top 10 earners in RT who's soon to be departing mm-hmm. from that list and leaving the organisation. Then there was the reports in the papers that Joe Duffy would possibly be on his way out at the end of his contract. Mm. He currently, of course, is the top paid presenter, we understand, in RTE after the departure of Ryan Tuberty for Pastures New mm. across the water uh, with Virgin Radio in the UK. So Joe Duffy currently earning €350,000, well, that's the 2022 figure anyway, mm. uh, which was only recently published by RTE. Um, if he does decide to extend his contract, he will be in line for a very, very, very 
hefty mm. pay cut because he would have to come down to below 250,000 euro which is mm. the pay of Kevin Backhurst the Director General of RTE who has instituted that pay cap that yeah. no presenters can be paid more than he is at a quarter of a million euros a year so mm. 100 euro 100,000 euros of a pay cut it's easy to see where the speculation would be if he's coming towards the end of his contract and there's no clear decision yeah. as to whether or not he's staying. Mm. The only thing I'd say about it is though, I think Joe Duffy really loves that gig. He loves doing Liveline. Yes. I think yeah, he yeah. is very good at doing Liveline, I have to admit. I'm a bit of a Liveline super fan. I think it's a great show. I think it has its moments. I think there's a lot of radio gold in Liveline every day. And I would imagine that Joe Duffy is somebody who is still very vibrant, you know, and very much energised. And you would, of course, you know, if you're going to have to take a massive significant pay cut, you know, it, it poses significant considerations but um, in the same breath I wouldn't actually rule out the idea of him staying on for another year I think he's still quite energised yeah. for the work he's doing on Liveline Yeah but do, do you think though at his age when he's already established well, you say exactly at his age like, well, I sorry, still well, think he's quite no, vibrant I, I, I don't mean age. that like he, he's on the cusp no, of, I know. of needing it's to go it's a retirement I mean, age I mean, with the career behind him that he has, I suppose is what I mean. Yeah. And when uh, the pay structures with RTE established previously that they thought that he was worth 300,000 a year for radio and then another 50,000 for the TV work that he did on the mm -hmm. side. Uh -huh. There's a question as to whether then you, you think that you should devalue yourself and take a lower rate for a year or two because if you believe that that's what you're worth mm. then if RTE have just decided that they're not going to pay that much anymore, are you almost sort of conceding that maybe you were never worth that much? if you agree to do the same work for less in future. I don't know if we see it like that. What I, do you I don't think, it, I don't I don't think anybody it like in that. RT or RT as an organisation would see it as what people are worth at this point or, you know, it's devaluing their work. The, the organisation has to change. Mm. It is in a financial mm. crisis which is threatening its very existence going forward where you have politicians and members of the public debating whether or not they're going to pay their TV licence or what model is actually going to replace it. Yeah. It's all about getting things down. The level has been set now as to what people can expect to be paid. Oliver Callan has gone in now on the nine o'clock show. He says he's been paid, I think it's about 150 grand a year. Yes. Which he says currently wouldn't get him anywhere near the rare air of the top 10, but mm -hmm. very probably will soon is what he's, his own view on it is, given the fact that wages are going to be driven down mm -hmm. for the top, top, talent as yeah, the old that, that does mean be. that those those who are currently on in the lower end of the top 10 those who are currently on salaries of around 180 or 190,000 are, are we expecting them to basically start falling pro rata that if someone who was previously on 350 might have to be reduced to 250 that everyone else will have a kind of a pro rata downsizing so that actually top 10 might be 150 in future it's really hard to know but also I mean, the sexy thing to talk about with RTE is always the top 10 salaries. Yeah, I mean, the big picture true, yeah, here yeah. is really that the main issue facing RTE, and we didn't actually get to talk about it, is just wastage. There was the Toy Show musical report done by Grant Thornton, which mm. basically was a, a crib sheet on how not to run a very expensive musical production and theatrical production, of which none of your people who are running it yes. actually have the qualifications mm. to do, how to ignore your board, how to overstate your sponsorship revenue, how to book a musical that even if you sold everything out, every single ticket for it, you still wouldn't have broken even and then you lost loads of money for it. Just that fact blows my mind by the way. When the original planning was going on they were playing a certain number of shows where had it sold out it would have turned quite a handsome profit which would have been great on year one because then you'd have all the intellectual property and the stages and everything else you'd already have the songs all written and produced going forward. But then for it to ultimately turn out that when, when push came to shove that you didn't actually put on enough shows to ever possibly break mm. even on year one. Like that's Mad. it's a mind-blowing level of managerial it's unbelievable. It's, or lack of. It's Mad. unbelievable. It, it is 
beyond parody, it's almost laughable if it wasn't actually serious because it is, it just is an example and it's a symptom of the larger problem. There was another report then which followed that about uh, the severance or the exit pay mm. for executives. There's a lot of questions again being asked about, you know, mm. particularly the package uh, owed or given to Breda O'Keefe, uh, who used to be the, the you know, the basically the chief financial officer mm. in RT there. And all of this is building up. This is basically at a point, I, I made the point on the news, I think it was two weeks ago when this was on, that it never rains, but it pours when it's RT news stories. Mm. That it's just always something back to back to back. And it's not even a drip, drip, drip. It's a torrent of stories that come out about RT when they get into this, this flow. And it's all coming at a time where the government says it's going to have hopefully some sort of a shape of the new funding model uh, by summer. Uh, there's question marks as to whether any of the board, the board should uh, survive their roles. Doesn't look particularly rosy for their prospects based on these reports. So I think this is now, you, we went through all of 2023 and everything that came with that. And we're like, this couldn't get much worse. Mm. It's just getting worse and worse yeah. and worse because now you're just getting to see you saw the headlines in 2023. You're seeing the meat on those bones now in 2024. Yeah. That's not good. Um, Zara, one thing that really strikes me is that, you know, Richard mentioned the, the torrent of stories. That Part of it almost seems like if you're cynical about the government's intentions, you'd nearly say it was engineered this way because they knew there was a certain number of other reports that were coming downstream. The Grant Thornton report into the Toy Show musical, mm. the report about the redundancy scheme that Breed O'Keefe availed of that no one seemed to realise that she was availing of. There's those other two government uh, reports coming now in the next couple of weeks about governance and culture and everything else that it's very difficult for RTE to ever be able to try and like, you know, go and have a, a cold shower and wash off all the previous, you know, horrors and come back out and feel refreshed and that you're ready to go again because no sooner have they recovered from one that there's another, another one preordained coming down the line anyway. Well, I mean, and we actually never talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the rat in the newsroom being another horror for people who were... Rats yeah. plural. You know, God, I actually, I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like. I'm just sorry, I'm reading an article from two weeks ago, actually, which just referred back to that about the rats. Yeah. We should stress for the way, uh, we're not talking in like, in hypotheticals or we're no, not no, trying no, to use rodent, metaphors here. We mean a literal... This isn't leaks in a mob sense no, 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 that the rats no, like, no. Is, one journalist told the Irish Mail on Sunday, a rat scurried out into the middle of the newsroom. There was pandemonium among the staff at the time. Basically, a guy had to pick up a bin and throw it at the rat who was then cornered. It's an unbelievable situation. This is a problem that's been very well flagged. Who's doing what about it? A lot of people don't want to go near the newsroom now. And I, I like it's just actually, the newsroom. The canteen is a bit is, is has been closed, closed yeah, for a while. Yeah. yeah. Anytime I've been out there to do whatever story about RT, the canteen has remained closed there. Mm. Good but place like, for a couple. If of you're soup. already working somewhere where morale is quite low, and then you're dealing with a literal rodent yeah. infestation, like that's a very big problem. Yeah. Uh, like, you know. So the decision is apparently coming very soon because everyone seems to suggest that once those other two reports have come in, the government then will have its agenda cleared. Uh, I can't imagine that they will... Well, first of all, I don't think it would make any sense to retain a TV licence in any form anyway, given the current level of non-compliance. But secondly, I don't foresee them retaining any kind of standalone separate charge for RTE that they would ask households to pay in the months coming up to uh, nationwide local elections. Sounds like a good plan, yeah. Then is that what we're looking at where like no matter what the, the rationale might be for future funding that it'll all depend on I how close it, we are to an election. I could see it being booted down the road, yeah. yeah. Booted down the road? Well, I think, I think that, before the election. Uh, it, it's going to be very hard for them to implement the change. They might signal it and then say, well, we're not bringing it in yet because that's and a very unpopular thing to do. Do you think like the budget might be a good time to just slap it in there among all the other stuff? Could be. If you're given a giveaway budget, you might you just possibly mean, so. yeah. gloss it over. I, mean, yeah. someone I don't know. Did, someone in Manchester House did make the point to me a couple of weeks ago that like this month and, and last month we've had every household in the country being given 150 euro free electricity basically and in that light when the state is spending that much money on household supplies. around. Well, wouldn't you just give every household 160 quid of free television and just abolish the licence altogether? It's not like the money isn't there essentially to do it. So I'll wait and see what happens on that front. Um, one situation which is quite fluid 
actually at the time of recording this on Wednesday lunchtime is the prospect which I know Richard you've been covering today of a ceasefire in Gaza and maybe it's best not to go too much into that for fear that it might change by no. the time this airs but one interesting aspect to the debate around the Middle East in recent days is around McDonald's and whether McDonald's is now paying a price at the bottom line for its situation yes. in the Middle East. Yes, the headline on this is that boycotts actually have a big impact, right? Because McDonald's was the one which took the headlines this week. So basically, people might have seen, if you've been on social media since the war began back in last October, there has been calls online for boycotts of major brands like McDonald's, like Starbucks, like Coca-Cola and other ones as well besides. Those are your main three though which have been targeted. Now for the first time in four years McDonald's missed a quarterly sales target. Uh, this was in quarter four of 2023. Big slump in sales. Now what happened there is basically there's been a massive boycott online because um, McDonald's Israel I think it was basically said in the aftermath of October we're donating free meals to the IDF. Uh, and there's a lot of postings from McDonald's Israel around that. Now, McDonald's itself, as a global Wide chain, has yeah. kept its kept its head down, I think, a lot over this. But McDonald's has a big, 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 big spread of stores in the Middle East, in Muslim countries, and in places like Ireland, France, the United Kingdom, where there has been a lot of talk about boycotts. And they are the third company now, which is reported after Starbucks did already, and Coca-Cola, a big slump in terms of overall sales. And they have pointed to the boycott movement as being something which has had an impact. Now, Coca-Cola, it's happened at a very micro level as well as at a big level. People might have seen before Christmas, I think it was, that one GAA club in Derry uh, refused to stock Coca-Cola because of um, what they said were links to the IDF. So this is something which is probably going to be ongoing. People's feelings on this are so uh, ingrained at this point in time um, that I do consider that these boycotts are probably something which is going to stick around for as long as the war is going on. Now, McDonald's, for their part, have said that they've Mm -hmm. blamed um, misinformation on the slump in sales. Um, So I think they're almost trying to distance themselves in some way from the origins of this, which was McDonald's Israel, in the fervour and the emotion and the heat of the moment of what happened in October 7th, um, very much doing what it probably saw as the patriotic thing Mm. and tying themselves to the military there. Now, if you're a follower of all things royal, and at least one person around the table is, um, Mm. hint, it's not me or Richard, uh, king by name, king by nature, um, (laughs) then you will be very interested, of course, with events across the water in the last few days where the cancer diagnosis of King Charles has been announced and the monarch is now undergoing some kind of treatment. Although, of course, we don't know exactly what kind of cancer he's been diagnosed with. Uh, We've been speaking to ITV's royal correspondent, Chris Shipp, and we started by asking him why the palace has been so circumspect about exactly what kind of cancer the king's been diagnosed with. It kind of depends how you look at it, because I think when we first found out he had cancer, like when we first found out that he was going in for a prostate operation, everyone was saying, well, the palace is being really open about um, a member of the royal family and their health diagnoses. Uh, And the trouble is, you know, uh, as night follows day, if you give that bit of information, people want the next bit of information. uh, And therefore, uh, you know, you've got to balance that against the king. Uh, you know, rightly um, having some form of medical privacy. Um, I, I don't think... The trouble is everyone's going to speculate about what kind of cancer it is. The only thing they have done is ruled out prostate cancer. Uh, but when you don't tell us what it is, everyone's going to speculate. It's kind of what we're doing here. Um, and uh, I would have thought at some point they'll have to give us a little bit more detail. I noted from the palace statement the other day, they didn't say, not going to give you any form of information. They just said, not going to give you any more information yet. So I suspect some way down the line we might might get more.
And Chris, I suppose a lot of people will sort of speculate on why it is that Harry travelled so quickly. And I know I heard some commentators sort of saying this morning that perhaps the King would have preferred if Harry hadn't rushed to be there because it sort of indicates a sense of urgency. But what's your read of that situation, Harry jumping on the plane and getting there so quickly? Don't forget, for us, it was quickly because the palace announced it at uh, six o'clock on Monday evening. And uh, then we were told by um, Harry's office that he was on his way. For Harry, it was less quick, remember, because he would have had a phone call. We don't know exactly when, but we know the king reached out uh, personally to his two sons, William and Harry, but also to his three siblings, uh, Andrew, Edward and Anne, uh, and told them all um, himself about his uh, cancer diagnosis. Now, that could have happened... Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, that kind of information we're not privy to. It's a private family matter. Um, but so Harry jumping on a plane on Monday night was not as uh, urgent, I think, as it made it seem when you put it together with the, the, the announcement from the palace uh, uh, on Monday night. As for him coming eight, eight hours or whatever it is uh, from, from um, California and landing and having a 45 minute with the king, I kind of thought it might be a little bit longer. Um, but, you know... Uh, the king was off to Sandringham. I suppose you can only fly the helicopter in certain hours of daylight. Um, and that was the that was the time that was um, allotted. And we don't quite know where Harry is yet, or at least we haven't found him yet. We've kind of lost Harry in London somewhere. <laughs> Do you think, Chris, this is a change in terms of how the palace communicates? Because obviously you've been following the family for many years. You know, it feels like when the Queen, even in, in her sort of latter years, was, was going through life and having various different procedures, there was never really much detail given, was there? You know, you kind of touched on it in the, in, in the first response there, but it's to us, it seems like there's a lot more uh, transparency about what's happening and there's a lot more putting family first sort of messaging coming from the royal family now. Yeah, I think there's two points there. There's the William putting the family first thing, and we can maybe talk about that in a minute. And we know that he's um, back to work uh, today, Wednesday, um, as it is, um, as we record this. Um, but, you know, then, then there's this whole issue of giving out information. Like, look at all the good things that have come out about prostate. I don't think I've said the word prostate as many times as I've said it in the last uh, two weeks. And maybe that's a good thing. It's the kind of thing that us guys never go to the doctor about. Oh, God, I don't want to talk about that thing. And now we've had the king saying, well, I'm going in for one. Um, I've got this benign enlarged prostate. I'm having treatment and I've told everyone about it. In fact, everyone around the world knows about it. So, um, you know, and I've spoken to plenty of um, oncologists and uh, urologists um, trying to be the, you know, you know, just like in journalism, you try and get an expert in a in an area of field for a very short period of time. Uh, mine's been sort of urology in the past um, couple of weeks. Uh, and, you know, a lot of urologists say they're expecting um, a massive increase of men coming down the line to get themselves checked out. Now, if you have uh, this enlarged prostate, which the king had, you're at no greater or lesser risk of getting cancer. But there's only one way to check whether you've got cancer, and that's to go and get yourself um, checked out if you've got the problems that he clearly was suffering from. So, you know, to that end, it's a good thing. And cancer charities have said much the same thing about um, his openness about his cancer in the last couple of days. Yeah, and very notable that the palace, when they were confirming his diagnosis, did say that he wanted to raise awareness of the condition. Although, of course, there's there's limits to how much awareness you can raise when we don't know very much more about exactly where his cancer has been identified. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're asking Sorry, Chris, to guess, uh, and you know, I'm not an, I'm not a medic, but if you ask me to guess, they they say that before you do a prostate operation, every single time they check the bladder. Um, now, you know, that's not a prediction from me. That's just what medics say they do, uh, and you know, people get bladder cancer. But again, and I'm not predicting. I'm just saying what what medics 
Olympics kind of a guessing it might be. Fair enough. Um, on a practical level, though, this does have knock-on consequences for the rest of the family because you mentioned William having to go back to work now because he was expected to be taking some time out for the next little while uh, while his wife, uh, the former Kate Middleton, is recovering from surgery of her own. Well, he he did take that time out and, and he's back to work uh, today, Wednesday. Uh, we, we actually got the news that William was going back to work on, on Monday morning. And I thought, OK, it was fairly interesting. We'll, we'll I'm sure we'll cover that on Wednesday when it comes round. Obviously, we're paying a lot of attention to what William's doing today and what he might say as well. Uh, so therefore, uh, any words that he says about the king during a speech he's making on Wednesday evening when he attends a charity function for London's uh, air ambulance. And, you know, it's worth reminding ourselves that these air ambulance charities we hear about all the time uh, are charity funded, uh, not funded by state. So um, this is a charity fundraiser that William is at on, on Wednesday evening. Um, and so he did take a period of time out to look after his Kate, uh, to look after his wife, uh, and that's kind of what you were asking me earlier about putting family first. You know, gone are the days of like, you know, duty comes first. I'm going to leave the family at home. And very different to when the king was in hospital. If you think when the Queen Elizabeth, the late queen, was in hospital, Prince Philip never saw her. When he went into hospital, she never saw him. And yet um, Queen Camilla was in and out of, uh, of the London clinic two or three times a day when the king was in there and, and went in with him for the operation, you know, effectively holding his hand, you know, metaphorically and physically, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, I think a different generation. You know, the king and queen might be 75 and 76, but we are talking about a different generation to, you know, his mother and his father, uh, Elizabeth and Philip. Chris, obviously yourself and other royal correspondents in the UK, you do brilliant work. Obviously, we're looking at it from a slightly different angle. People here in Ireland have, you know, we see a lot of the royal coverage over the years and particularly a lot of the family drama that we've seen in recent times between Harry and William, uh, Meghan and Kate, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, even if you look at the headlines there, I'm just looking at the Daily Mail online, they say that Prince Harry is now already flying back to LA after just 24 hours in the UK. I refer back to like Zara's question at the start where there was almost a feeling that he almost came too soon, that him flying in, there was criticism for him flying in too soon. Now he's been criticised for how long he spent meeting the, the king, how long he spent in the UK, and now he's flying back. How much of it do you feel there is almost this, and it's not just it's not just the coverage that happens, it's always so social media as well. There is almost an egging up of the drama. Obviously, there is real strife behind the scenes there, but there's a lot of over-the-top sort of focus on things, which, you know, people are just reading between the lines and trying to spin their own narratives as well, aren't they? <sighs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you raised so many points there. I don't know quite where to begin, you know, like media coverage, uh, social media, online, 24 hours, Harry's in, helicopters are mm. up. You know, we're following black vans across Heathrow Airport. Is Harry in there? Isn't he there? You know, we, we were, you know, we were doing that ourselves uh, yesterday and we, we did get that one still photograph of him um, in the back of that blacked out um, SUV. Look, yeah, there's family drama. Yeah, of course there is. Um, are William and Harry speaking to each other? No, is, is the blatant answer to that. And despite everything that's happened in the past couple of days, despite their own father telling them that he's got cancer, um, that's still not a good enough reason for, for William and Harry to, to meet up while they're in the same country. That doesn't tell you about the depth of the, their relationship and how, how rock bottom it is, then nothing will. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of answers all the questions about are Harry and William getting on? Answer... No, they're definitely not. Um, however, I mean, if, if you've got the, the resources that Harry clearly has and, you know, he takes 
you know, he sometimes gets criticized in some papers for taking private jets all over the US. But if you've got the money to you can hop on a plane from California to London and it, you know, doesn't make a massive dent in your bank account, um, it's probably a bit like one of us getting a bus from one side of Dublin to the other to see your granny uh, to check the shoes all right. So, you know, he was here for a very short period of time. It does seem a long way to come for a very short meeting. But, um, you know, they, they, they kind of move in different circles to, to, to I suspect, all of us on this call and um, everyone, everyone listening to it. Chris, you know, Richard just touched on there the work that you do as a royal correspondent. And we, as correspondents, try to break the fourth wall sometimes for our listeners to give them an insight into what it's like to work in the field. And, and your brief is one we're not always getting a chance to have a bit of a peek at. Um, and I know on your own podcast you've done that before. But um, I want to ask you a little bit about what it's been like to cover the royal family since the changing of the guard, since everything changed. Because I, I know at the time uh, when the Queen died, both Richard and I were in London covering it ourselves. But you were very much there two straight weeks. I, I think I sent you a message at the time to say I couldn't get over the resilience of you through that time. But, um, you know, since the changing of the guard, has it been a different a different beat for you or is it much business as usual? Uh, resilience has its limits um, for all of us, I'd say. And yes, that was a busy period of time. But did you know what? I mean, before I did this job, I was a political correspondent. I was in Westminster. Um, when I was first there, Tony Blair was prime minister. Then we had the change to Gordon Brown. Then we had the first coalition government with David Cameron. Then we had uh, the Brexit referendum. Remember that? Uh, then we had uh, Theresa May coming in. So my, I had a sort of reasonably busy time in Westminster. And I kind of thought to myself, um, when I moved in 2017, on oh, that royal beat, that looks like a lot of fun. Um, you know, none of this sort of Brexit nonsense. I can go and I can go and cover the royals. And I'm sure we'd travel around the world and have a lovely time. And then, obviously, we've had Harry Meghan in, Harry Meghan out. We've had Prince Philip get ill, Prince Philip die. We've had the Queen get more and more frail. We've had a platinum jubilee. We've had, you know, the Queen dying, the first ever coronation since 1953. And all the rest of it. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, and now, just when I thought the beat might be sort of settling <laughs> settling down somewhat, <laughs> we've got a, a king who's, um, you know, of advanced years, you know, not, obviously not as old as his mum, but 75, um, and now has not one, but two uh, health uh, alerts in the past, what, two weeks? Um, so... I mean, sort of 2024 isn't starting the way in which I thought it might start. Um, and obviously we've got Kate, uh, you know, we haven't spoken much about her surgery and she's entitled to privacy. All we know is as abdominal surgery, but she's out of action until Easter. So um, there's a lot going on. But out of the four most senior members of the royal family, King, Queen, William, Kate, only two of them are in action at the moment. And, and you know, take it back a week and only Camilla was in action. Even William is still off. So... Yeah, it's uh, it, it's um, it, it's a busier beat than I anticipated it would be uh, when I um, when I jumped from politics in 2017. Well, here's a slightly self-interested question because I'm a political correspondent here, and I kind of wonder about not alone just the change of of pace between your old job and your present one as well, but you know, given when you're a political correspondent, you know, part of their your rationale, your your energy for getting up in the morning is because you think that it's important to scrutinise the workings of democracy and to hold those that are in power to account. But in in the truly you know accountable democratic sense where the people that you're covering have been elected by the, yeah. the people of the country. Slightly different circumstances where you are now. And I wonder how your sensibilities from your last role translate into what you do now. I suppose for, for me, one of the biggest differences was the fact that we, we've got 650 MPs uh, in the House of Commons. Um, I think that's still the number. At least that was the number when I worked there. Uh, and apart from the, the, the Sinn Féin members who don't take their seats, you know, uh, they're all in the Commons. They're all happy to speak, mostly, if you make those contacts and make those relationships. If, they, if the ministers don't want to speak, they've got special advisers who want to speak. If they don't want to speak, there's lots of people wanting to gossip in the corridors. Uh, when you go into the royal family, there's a, there's a, that, that number shrinks 
but by a factor of 100, I don't know, uh, um, my maths isn't that good, but uh, you don't have as many people, and obviously the royals don't sit down and do interviews. Yes, I've done interviews with Princess Anne, I've sat down with... Uh, the King, when he was uh, Prince of Wales and spoke about, you know, environmental things as well. I've interviewed Harry, William and all the rest of it. But it doesn't happen very often. It's not like a weekly occurrence, as, as you well know. Um, so it is very different. But for me, what makes the job very interesting is the history. I mean, I know the royals aren't elected, but nor are they in Spain or Denmark or um, the Netherlands or Sweden or Norway. It's just part of our constitutional makeup. It's how it's been and it's how it's how it will be until such time that there's a referendum and people say that they want an elected head of state. At the moment, if you look at the polls, you know, they've been slightly better, but they've been slightly worse. I mean, uh, at the moment, it looks like there's no great appetite for that in the UK. So that's our setup. That's what we've got. The king's the head of states. He's the head of nation as well. Uh, and we cover them as best we can. And I suppose if there's one good thing about the royal family is that they do uh, give this focus on, uh, you know, on, on the charitable sector. They can bring a spotlight to things. You think of Harry's and Victor's games. You think of all the stuff that William and Kate and Harry did when they used to like each other on mental health. Um, you think what the king's done for the environment, speaking at the... Um, G, what was the last G? G26, 27? I forget where we were now, but whatever one we had um, in the Middle East recently. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and politicians, in fact, I spoke to Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, about this recently. Politicians have that very short cycle where they're looking at the, the next electoral cycle, whether it's four years or five years. I think in Australia it might be even shorter, three years. And you think King Charles, as Prince of Wales, was talking about the environment in 1972 and being ridiculed for it, but he wasn't worried about being re-elected, so kept plugging away. And lo and behold, it's it's been proved that he was right to talk about plastic pollution and, and, and climate change. So that's a long answer to saying that that's the situation we have. Uh, and it's a very interesting beat to cover. It was a long answer. Sorry about that. No, I, actually, right. I really enjoyed it, actually. It was, it was a good insight, Chris. Thank you for that. Look, really quickly before we go, because I know you're, you're, you've got loads of places where you've got to chase Harry around uh, London. Um, I suppose like a lot of people listening to the podcast and, and I, people might say this is too early to talk about, but, you know, bigger picture stuff. You know, do you think it's likely that we could see some form of abdication in the future? And do you think if that were the case that, you know, uh, William from following him now for a couple of years, do you think William is ready to step up into the role while his children are still quite young? Difficult questions on this podcast, don't you? Like abdication, um, <laughs> do they like each other? Uh, and uh, in Ireland, we don't have um, monarchy. Anyway, let's let's start with abdication. Uh, um, I've just come back from Denmark, actually, where uh, we covered the a different royal family. In fact, it was very refreshing covering a different royal family. There were some similarities. There were some very big differences as well. Queen Margreta, Margreta uh, was eighty, is sorry, eighty-three, and decided, you know what? I'm going to hand this over. I'm not terminally ill, not that we know of. Uh, I just reached an age where I don't think I can do the job properly anymore. My son, Frederick, is 55 years old. He's now King Frederick. His son, the new crown prince or the heir to the throne, the equivalent of our Prince of Wales, it just turned 18. So therefore, he's of an age where, you know, so they basically bumped everything down a generation. Uh, now, if you think in, in, in Western countries where, where we're living, if you're lucky, uh, you know, you can easily live, let's say, to your late 80s, early 90s. Some people live to 100. Um, do we want our heads of state to be that old? Do we, you know, and, and the, the Danish decided as much as a shock as it was to them, they all thought that Queen Margrethe would rule until her death, just like Queen Elizabeth did in the UK. But she surprised them all on New Year's Eve, handed it all down. And the Danes sat back and thought, do you know what? That's not a bad idea. We're happy with that. That's good. You know, she deserves her retirement. We like her. She's got lots of projects she wants to do, and we, we fully support it. Now, I'm not saying this is going to happen in the UK, 
But it's quite an interesting model, isn't it, to think about? Uh, and in 10 years' time, God willing, it, it, uh, Prince Charles being uh, King Charles, sorry, see how it doesn't takes a long time for it to um, to sink in. Um, King Charles will be, uh, you know, mid 80s, God willing. Uh, Prince William will be uh, early 50s. Prince George will be 20. Is that a point to have a debate about handing everything down uh, to the next generation in the Danish way? Um, and I know that um, in Denmark and Sweden and places where they've got quite elderly monarchs, they're having that debate as well at the moment. I'm sure the king isn't too happy about it, but um, the, the media are having that debate. And uh, I think it's quite an interesting one to have. Always interesting times ahead. Uh, Chris, you've been very generous with your time. We know you need to go and chase various other uh, royal members around London, so we will let you go. Uh, Chris Shipp is ITV's royal correspondent. He's the presenter of the Royal Rota podcast, anywhere you get your audio. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Gotcha. Thanks, Bye. guys. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, we're going to do something on the group chat that we don't usually do, which is talk about an awards show in the US. Uh, and I genuinely mean that we don't usually do that. because another mean? We, we, we actually have definitely done all of them. <laughs> the Oscars, the Golden Globes, we don't stop yeah, talking about that. We went them. to the Oscars last year and talked about it on the group chat. That's why I said it with a certain amount of tongue in cheek. Oh, sorry, okay, King, okay. But I'm sorry. sorry. Didn't detect us. King of the sarcasm was God. missed. Uh, but the, we, we, first, we've never talked about the Grammys We're before. such losers that we right. Manners, everybody. Manners, everyone. To be fair, we've never talked about the Grammys and because the Grammys often actually in the short time that we've been on air haven't ever produced stuff that has kind of crossover or breakout moments yeah, that are worth talking about year. afterwards they were great so year. many storylines this yeah. year uh, where, where do you want to start because there's loads uh, like Miley Cyrus having her like moment to the ex-boyfriend like was stunning love that for her it's a, as, love a girl who's having a revenge moment I'm here for it as an exceptionally pale and square person explain yeah. to me exactly what's going on with that boyfriend so situation she, I actually don't know the full extent of the breakup actually I think I don't know why I don't know why they broke up but was it Liam Hemsworth went wrong. one of yeah. the Hemsworths she went out with anyway and I know she won a Grammy and she had written that song Flowers which was a total breakup anthem total tune even if you haven't been through a breakup it's just a tune and got a chance to perform it at the Grammys and after she'd won it and it's and she, she won her first Grammy yeah, yeah. sensation I was like good for her it was lovely and I feel like everyone's sharing it and I'm seeing it every time I open Instagram for the last couple of days and I'm here for it but it's either that or opening up and seeing performances of Fast Car Richard, well this is it like uh, there was so many different actual newsworthy bits of it I think Fast Car has become the viral sensation of it mm. so Fast Car has been number two once again in the Billboard chart in the US some 34 35 years after it was first released by the great um. Tracy Chapman and um, Luke Combs is the country singer who has been doing it and wrote it to great success in recent times. But 
There was a great moment. Everybody has seen the performance now at this point in time. Mm. If you haven't, go and check it out. Oh it's my really God. well worth seeing. Because I, I can be quite like cynical about Hollywood glitz and glamoury sort of bits and mm-hmm. bobs, but the, the actual uh, reverence, I think, that Luke Combs showed and how gleeful he was internally at performing alongside mm-hmm, Tracy Chapman was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, and it was great to see somebody like Tracy Chapman get the recognition because she's basically disappeared from the public spotlight. She mm-hmm. doesn't like attention she's in quite spotlight. quite private now, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. She doesn't own a yeah. smartphone. So it was remarkable that like this it's it's the year of our Lord twenty twenty four and she's decided no that level of contactability is not for me I love don't that need for that her. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's a rare moment where everybody I think was just united in this mm. as well like as well like there's the, there's the different um, there's the different issues at play in a sort of a big picture thing I mean country music and it's is very much seen as one side of America Tracy Chapman's folk music is very much seen as another side of America the fact that a really just good good song has that cut through appeal mm-hmm. to all people. Uh, is a beautiful thing. So that was one thing which was truly remarkable. I think everybody really loved that. Um, the viewership was up by 34%, which is rare for an award oh. show. 34% increase in viewers. So that's up by... Is that the ripple effect of the Super Bowl? Because Taylor Swift was showing up and everyone wants to see her now. But, it's, but it's, it shows that we're doing something right. Um, there was also the tribute to Sinead O'Connor uh, yes, and yeah, Shane McGowan yeah. done by Annie Lennox. Uh, and then Celine Dion coming on stage to that song, I'm Your Lady. I actually was a bit emotional seeing Celine Dion. She looks great. She does look great actually. Really well. Everyone well, would have been worried about yeah, whether they were really ever going to well. see her in public again. So yeah. seeing her out and about was brilliant as well. Yeah. And then but, present um the, the course the inevitable we, we actually said before we started this, we weren't going to talk about Taylor Swift. No, and, can we sorry, I do want to pause because the, the call for a ceasefire now actually was pretty significant because that's been something which has been levelled at musical artists in the US, in particular the likes of Beyonce, like Taylor Swift. All these people have not had a peep to say mm. on Gaza, whereas they are often very you know, they do the easy thing of just yeah, saying a strategic or Biden or whatever like yeah. that, you know. Mm. So that was quite significant. It, was on, it wasn't planned either. Yeah. Uh, the okay. ceasefire now call. So fair play to okay. Annie Lennox for, for, for sticking her neck up in that way. Uh, because, you know, it's always yeah. rare that when things go off script in these things. So mm. we yeah. always like when it happens. It's always the, the easier thing for somebody in those kind of commercially precarious things to do is just to say nothing and hope you offend nobody in doing so. So absolutely fair point. What I was going to say about Taylor Swift and it's with rela- with reference to... We can't stop talking about it. Well, this is the thing. We don't, we don't intend to, to, we need to stop talking, talking about, about her. But yet here she is. And by the way, the Super Bowl is on on Sunday night. So if you'd like to see her for 25 seconds of Virgin Media 2, uh, tune in from 10, the quarter to 11, I think, on Sunday night. Um, but she, she got a bit of grief for not embracing Celine Dion or at least not being mm. seen to embrace Celine Dion on stage as she went up to receive the award from her which is only just a, again a measure of like the lightning rod of pointless criticism that she is because Celine Dion as we know who has been like significantly ill has a progressive degenerative condition mm. nobody was quite sure whether in fact it's perfectly okay to go up and to give her an embrace yeah. for fear that you might accidentally do her harm but of course, if you're Taylor Swift, you can't do anything without somebody getting really upset with your existence. But then they had a photo backstage and everything. So I think it was kind of more or less, well, people are still moaning about it. But I still think, yeah, you're right. She was mm. probably like erring on the side of caution and perhaps she was caught up in the moment. Um, but they did have a photo afterwards. I think it's, you know, I'm sure it's probably fine. The, another moment that came up was... Um, Jay-Z? Jay-Z, yeah. Because there was another, another unscripted moment. Yeah, and I mean like adore Beyonce he's like she's the only female artist who's had the most she has the most Grammys, most Grammys, Grammys of any of and anybody. never won best yeah. album and he's like that's on you it's a really mad point like, that's on you and it's such a valid point it is like it is mad she's won 32 Grammys I think it is overall which mm-hmm. is an insane amount of awards to have won for any one person mm-hmm. um, but the album of the year Grammy is the one that everybody actually wants yeah. and if you think about what's actually happened what albums particularly your last three albums have all been artistic and commercial smashes on, on an unprecedented level 
Lemonade was the one which she was robbed blind for um, (laughs) taken by Adele's album which nobody cares about anymore Uh, and Adele herself obviously went on stage and says I'm really sorry (laughs) Adele like loves Beyonce but there is the the point that Jay-Z also was making is that there has been a long history and the Grammys have tried to sort of back away from it in recent years and have failed multiple times Mm. is that there is a race imbalance in the Grammys Mm. in terms of things like how they treated uh, hip hop which is actually if you've seen the Sinead O'Connor documentary Nothing Compares there was that whole thing about Sinead O'Connor making the stand for Public Enemy the rap group then there you go there's another example of that um also, there was that time that Macklemore won Best Rap Album over Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> That's a, uh, wow. So there's been, a long, yeah. there's been a long-term problem, but it is mad when you have, you're clearly see, seeing the artistic merit of Beyonce coming through in terms of overall wins, but you can't bring yourself to recognise that, you know, she's deserving of at least one album of the year mm. when Taylor Swift already has four. Mm. And yeah. not to say anything about Taylor Swift's albums because they're, they're great. They're all great. But, but, yeah. but the point is that if, if you're the greatest recording artist who's basically ever lived, as Beyonce might well claim to be, never having won an award for best albums. Um, kind of her last album was phenomenal. They're, they're all brilliant. It's amazing. They're great. Yeah. One point, because we're, we're probably getting accused of, of kissing up to Taylor Swift too much. Destiny's Child should have got album of the year back in the day. Robbed they were. <laughs> One thing, the, okay. two, the two points. This criticism because Taylor Swift, um, we'll move on very quickly, yeah, has used the Grammys to announce a new album. I think that was out of order. Yeah. What if she hadn't won? If she hadn't won and she didn't have an acceptance speech to, to announce that she was making another album, <laughs> was she just going this. to overshadow the show then by just going on Instagram afterwards oh, and going, look, you were, yeah. your mentions I'd the like to win it next time. The more, the more serious point is she's threatened to sue the, the kid uh, who has that online account who, uh, um, who tracks where her private jet goes and details the length of her private jet flight. Sometimes they're only 20 minutes or so. Mm. Last week there was so, 12 minutes. So Taylor Swift fans have actually themselves said, I can't believe she's doing this. She shouldn't be doing this. So and she shouldn't go. be doing that. I'm insulating myself from them by using them. Publicly, oh publicly accessible information anyway. that she should be right, allowed to repeat. Uh, on, on a more uh, serious note, actually, we actually don't have as much time to discuss this as we might have liked, but it's speaking of accountability in the general uh, entertainment industry. Um, bear with me a second on how I'm going to go about this. Um, Zara, you, you are aware who, for example, Hulk Hogan is. Yeah. You've heard the name Hulk Hogan? I remember his daughter, Brooke Hogan. Remember they did a reality show on yes. MTV. Yes. Uh, you, oh, know, yeah. you know who John Cena is? Vaguely, yeah. He's you know the WWE guy. Yeah, yeah, you know who Dwayne The Rock Johnson is? I do. You know who all, all those people are? Do you know the reason why the, all those people are famous? Obviously, it's because they were of wrestlers, WWE. right? Do you know who's behind all of that? John Cena. No. The person who's responsible for this... WWE and the entertainment behemoth that it is. No. It's a guy called Vince McMahon. Oh, I've heard of him. No, I've heard of yes. him. Yes. Uh, well, have you heard about... Is his what... daughter involved in the business as well? Yeah, they're sure. all involved. Right, okay. Uh, which, which is in itself part, an interesting subplot of what we're going to discuss very briefly, which is that Vince McMahon, who is the founder of what was known as WWE, that's still its trading name, but it's now part of a bigger global empire, but he's still a major shareholder, uh, has been implicated in a rather... Um, really, really unsettling legal action in the US, which we say for the record, um, he completely um, dissents from that he's going to uh, vigorously defend himself in. But long story short, he's accused of not alone um, continually grooming certain female employees for sexual favours, but then also in the grimmer bit of the whole thing, basically creating a corporate culture where that was not alone tolerated, but sort of widely understood. And even in one instance where somebody who was in the middle of contract negotiations with WWE about whether they would remain an active wrestler was apparently offered sexual favours with this female member of staff uh, as something of a make weight to get them to sign a new contract. Now, the reason why this is so unsettling is not you can't isolate this to Vince McMahon himself as a single individual bad faith actor. The particularly worrying part is that because the entire company was made in his image, that so much of this was seems to have been known 
by senior management, including those that still remain there to this day. Vince is no longer involved in the day-to-day running of the company. But there's a real question, isn't there, Richard, for as someone who casually follows WWE as I do, about how the company can sort of ever propose to move on from something where, where this appears to have been a culture that was so rampant at all levels. Um, there's a lot in that gap, to be fair. And like what, what's brought this back is that there's he's now under federal investigation after he's being sued for effectively for, uh, he's accused of, um, sorry, this woman accused, Janelle Grant is accusing him um, of physical and emotional abuse, sexual assault and sex trafficking within WWE. She's suing Vince McMahon and another former executive of the company. The point is Vince McMahon has been accused of sexual misconduct going back to 1992 where he was accused by the first female referee in the company uh, of rape. That was something he uh, he denied. It was later settled out of court. Uh, He had to step down from the company a couple of years ago as CEO Mm. because of details that he had paid $15 million to four women over 16 years. Uh, over these claims of quiet, uh, mis- mis- to quiet claims of sexual misconduct. So there's been a long, long history of this and it's come back to bite the company at probably its most lucrative period. It has, as you said, been bought out by um, Endeavour, which is the company which owns UFC. It's only a part of a, another bigger company. They've also just signed a deal uh, with Netflix for $5 billion uh, for live rights to um, Raw, which is their Monday night show, and basically for all of their their, their products for a European uh, market. So this is a huge company and it seems to have failed to properly deal with long-standing allegations against their head honcho uh, and a man who has had his hand on the lever in every possible way for a long, long time. This is on the same scale in terms of the money involved as if this was a major Hollywood studio mm. or a major football club or any other sports brand mm-hmm. as well. So this is a huge, huge deal, particularly when there's you know, network deals. Netflix has literally paid for the first time ever. It's broken its model. It doesn't do doesn't live do entertainment. And it will but be. it's wow. paying $5 billion um, at a minimum yeah. for 10 years of entertainment on it. And uh, it comes in an industry where allegations of sexual misconduct and sexual abuse have been long standing and long circulating. And it seems that um, as an industry, it hasn't really gotten its house in order. It hasn't treated these with enough seriousness. And now it's at a position where what it has reached popularity on a level we've never seen. Like I remember when we were kids, wrestling was huge and it was a very household thing. Mm-hmm. It is now, enormous it's now. never been as popular as it is now. And I think that this is putting a huge light of exposure onto just how um, how much that there is this culture of it and the culture of secrecy around it in this, you know, billion, billion, billion dollar industry. Uh, before we go, uh, we should mention that the voters of Paris clearly really loved our big cars slot uh, closing last week's group chat. This is now going to be a weekly thing. Big cars chat is going to be our weekly. Can I just say, when we left the studio last week, I was like, that wouldn't have been our best work, that segment on the big cars. But I actually think it was all right. It people landed, loved it big cars. People, people loved, loved the big people car slot. It, yeah. uh, the people of Paris didn't love big cars because they've now decided to treble the possible par- par- car parking charges for SUVs where you could now be paying over 100 euro a day to park an SUV inside the city centre of Paris. Uh, something you could see happening here, Zara? I mean, maybe, I yeah. See, uh, I could yeah. see it happening. Yeah, I could see it happening. Actually, there's barely any parking space in the city centre now unless you go into a multi-storey. There's not really much on-street in Dublin city centre anymore. Oh, very little now. Very little on-street, Post-pandemic yeah. Post-pandemic life. Yeah, so yeah, I could see it happening for sure. Particularly, yeah, because a lot of people who do, and this is no slight on them, but a lot of people who do, do drive SUVs have no physical reason why they do need them. Um particularly We're in urban areas. anti-SUV. I'm very anti-people who just like... Very bad about it. But they, 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 they have literally, there's been multiple studies that they are more deadly to pedestrians and cyclists. And if there's no need for you to have it and people do have legitimate reasons for having SUVs, if there's Thank no legitimate you. reason, 
The double buggy brigade do need. The double buggy brigade. They do that? need the SUV. Some, somebody anyway. needs to stand up for the double buggy brigade. But, Big um, car yeah. chat probably might actually have a reason for coming back next week. Oh, if go I, on. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if it's going to oh, be announced in time. The teaser. There's, there's, there's car chat for Dublin coming soon. Mir, yeah. How's the training going for Marathon, by the way, before we go? It's not great. I'm very badly injured at the moment, to be honest. Yeah. Right. So, okay. yeah thanks, everybody who's donated. Keep yeah. donating, though. Yeah. 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 Hopefully. Yeah. Actually, we will put a link in the episode notes. Actually, Richard is running the Rome Marathon on St. Patrick's Day for Women's Aid, which is a fantastic cause. Uh, so we're going to stick. Say badly injured. I'm coming over an injury. Say, well, just before Richard people fear is, for my safety yeah, and well-being. Just, just a little bump in the road, uh, Maria. Uh, so we'll put a link in the studio or in the episode notes if you're listening uh, on Apple or Spotify. Uh, that is all the time we have for you this week. Uh, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Zara. Thanks, thank you, Dad. Ian in the gallery. Thank you, Ruri. Thank you, everyone else who's been involved. Darren here on the floor. Uh, and thank you for watching and listening. We will see you again same time next week. Bye. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, in-store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com retail 23. Shopify.com retail 23.